My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, are we starting? <laughs> we are seeing a kind of almost Zoolander-esque caricature of how excessive fashion can be. Our look shifting was like 16 to 20 hours a day. I would work like 450 hours in a month and making only $6. Creativity is one of the most powerful things that humans have. We underestimate the power of beauty and the power of humour. These are qualities that connect people and connectivity is a really potent thing right now. Don't point a finger, impart knowledge and information instead. Plus size modelling can go suck it. Um, (laughs) It's our job as designers to explore and discover beauty everywhere. So your voice is crucial and powerful in the supply chain. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. It's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't go away because everything is just fine. As a kid in the Melbourne seaside suburb of Beaumaris, Linda Jackson drew big eyed fashion girls and she signed them Original Linda. I can't think of a better or more telling signature for this iconic Australian fashion figure. And I'm going to call her a legend because that word is totally apt. It's no exaggeration to say that Linda, along with her friend Jenny Key, invented a new language for modern Australian fashion. This was in the 1970s, after they'd returned from their respective travels. So Linda, from her intrepid journeys through Asia, inspired by her early love for National Geographic, and to Paris, and Jenny, from several years at the epicentre of groovy London fashion, selling vintage clothes to Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones from the Chelsea Antiques Market. Back in Oz, what Jenny and Linda did through Flamingo Park in Sydney's Strand Arcade and the fashion shows they staged together was to create an Australian style that came from within, inspired by our own culture, flora, fauna and landscapes. Until then, we'd mostly looked outward, copying what Europe did, but Linda and Jenny shook that whole thing up and the world took notice. Before we recorded this interview, Linda was telling me about when Neiman Marcus took them to Dallas in 1986 and they had this thing called Australian Fortnight where Linda had a dedicated boutique. Then three years later in 1989, the V&A in London staged a show called Australian Fashion, the Contemporary Art and that featured heavily Linda and Jenny's work. Then there was the time when Karl Lagerfeld used Jenny's Opal Oz print for his Chanel show in 1983 and all the times that Linda and Jenny went to Milan and Paris and were photographed by Italian Vogue and made a massive splash. In 1982, Linda opened her Bush Couture studio, stepping up the art aspect to her work, and she began collaborating with Indigenous women boutique artists at Utopia Station. So this episode is all about culture and respect. It's about valuing original voices and it's also broadly about craft and the technique and the hands-on practice of making clothes. And for Australian listeners or anyone interested in Australian style, it's about our fashion history, which is important because as a young fashion country, I think we tend to focus on the new, but we do have this small but rich history of cool, incredible fashion iconoclasts. And that's why a new generation of fashion innovators, in particular Anna Plunkett and Luke Sales, the designers behind Romance Was Born, look to both Jenny and Linda as muses. Also, I reckon Linda Jackson is a bit of a magic person. (laughs) She is a wise woman, deeply connected to nature and storytelling. So we actually recorded this interview in my house, where Linda picked up my cranky standoffish cat, Mama, who literally turned to butter in her arms. And I was like, Mama, who are you? But Mama knew. Linda is someone special. Hurrah. Hurrah to you. <laughs> we have to begin by explaining what you're wearing. I wish that people could oh. see thing here. <laughs> well, it's a bit of recycling too, actually. Now, shall I really be really honest and tell you exactly? Yes, please. Honesty is the best policy. Um, Kmart pants because I've been in the bush as well, but you wouldn't know. And I slightly alter. They're black with white spots on them. They were flared sort of, and I've, I alter everything I wear, of course, to my own sort of style. And I've taken them in at the bottom so that they're tight in at the ankle so that, you know, yeah. and it's a really good look. 
Kmart pants. That's yep. not the vision that I'm seeing though when I'm looking at you. No, well, no, no you don't because, because I'm I've seeing... got a minimal wardrobe and I've come in actually to do have a chat with you today from my place in the bush. So I have clothes now that I, well, I've always, that's why Bush Couture came about in the first place anyway, is that you can look fabulous, but you can be in the bush, be practical, and then still get compliments. I have a uniform. I've got a dress underneath that is a one-shoulder dress that's quite fitted and goes down past my knees. I've worn the same style dress underneath for the last probably 30 years. The personal uniform. That's actually a concept that I've written about this idea that... Have you? Yeah. um, I interviewed a woman in Melbourne who works for Ethical Clothing Australia called Sigrid, and she advocates for the personal uniform because it makes life quicker and simpler. You know what you're doing. She says it makes her feel stronger and more dynamic because she doesn't have to faff around and mess up. And she always wears black or sometimes grey. Right. (laughs) But your layered dress. Yes. Then on top of that, I've got this a long sleeve... But it is red leopard print, let's just put it in. Yeah, it's red red leopard print. You're always drenched in colour. Well, drenched in colour, that's fantastic. So over the top was a Japanese cotton kimono that I found in an op shop in Bendigo and I recycled it into this favourite, because of being in, I've lived in the tropics for a very long time, so being in Bendigo, it's colder, so I've had to work out how can I have a wardrobe that I really like that works. So it's got a high collar that keeps me warm, like a Chinese sort of collar, and it's sleeveless and it's got a band that goes down the front that I can kind of close up with a safety pin or two if I like. It's funny to be having this conversation about practicality (laughs) with you because I wouldn't, if I had to think of five words to describe Linda Jackson, practicality would not be one of them. And yet, I'm wrong. Yes, because practicality actually was a basis of probably nearly everything I've ever done, funnily enough, and being practical about how to cut it out when you're designing. The cutting out part for me was really important and not wasting any scraps. Like the Japanese kimono, like Chinese shapes, I can make patterns and I can cut out without a pattern. So that was just something I naturally seemed to know what to do. Are you attracted to the shape of a kimono because of its wastelessness? Or well, its probably in the beginning I didn't know that until I started... Oh, well, from my early travels and travelling to lots of different Asian countries and just seeing how clothes are made, you know, it's all part of the trial and error and not wasting material and using every single scrap. But you didn't just kind of figure out how to cut stuff because you were trained. I, I mean, was, but I could still do that before that and I could still do that after that. Your so, mother was a great sewer, right? My mother made my clothes, of course, which she did, but mum and dad were ballroom dancers. That's how they met. So mum had... Oh, I love that. I read that in an interview. (laughs) Were they really? Like for fun or for... Oh, no, they were serious. They were in competitions and things like that. Dad was a dancing instructor and he had heard... Mum's told me this recently because we spend a lot of time together. She's 92. She told me recently that dad had heard that mum was a really good dancer. So he looked her up and asked her to come to dance with him and they danced quite a bit together and then got married. Mum said that you often did, actually, because you, look, if you're going to be perfectly in step, it must mean pretty good things for a nice marriage. That's actually beautiful. I was thinking about the, was it a bit spandangly and feather-strewn? Absolutely. (laughs) 1950s, yes. I was born in 1950, but absolutely, definitely. So Mum had someone special who made her ball gowns. She didn't make those, but she made all the other clothes because I think she regarded them as being something that was very special, that she really cared a lot about. So there was somebody, you know, she'd know what she wanted. And then she made my clothes because that's the way it worked. And then she used to make my clothes and I'd say when I got a bit older, but mum, I needed to be shorter. I needed to be like this. It should be like that. And she said, well, look, I'm not making your clothes anymore. So she gave me a small allowance and taught me how to sew and I had to make my own clothes. After school... What did you do? So I know that you went to fashion school, which is now part of RMIT in Melbourne. And it was I did, called... but I was already making my own clothes before that. I went to Emily McPherson College of Domestic Economy. Which makes me laugh as a name because it sounds so hoity-toity. Well, most of the girls were going to be teachers and I realised that I didn't want to be a teacher, even though, funnily enough, through my life with workshops and teaching has become a big part of it, like handing on skills, but I didn't want to be that person who became a teacher as such. 
But we, it was very comprehensive. It was an incredible course of what we did. Classical old-fashioned sewing, pattern making, tailoring. You did weaving and painting and millinery. Miss Wig was our millinery teacher. Miss Wig. Yes, everybody remembers Miss Wig. Miss Wig sounds like a drag queen. No, well, she wasn't. <laughs> no. She was quite elderly. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was really packed full of everything that you learnt, skills. So I guess a year was enough of that for me. I already could do a lot of it and I got in trouble because I wanted to make the latest mod look but the teacher said in tailoring the jacket has to be exactly that, you know, length between from your waist down and between the skirt and, you know. So there were all these rules but I thought learn the rules, I learned the rules and then I could just do whatever I wanted. I was just about to say it's really great to learn the rules before you decide to smash them, right? Bend them, twist them turn them upside down. And some of it was so classic, they were rules made up by whom anyway. I liked ethnic, African, Balinese, But did Latvian. you like it then? Did you know I you did. liked it then? How did Absolutely. you find that stuff in Beaumaris when you grew up in Melbourne? Because I read National Geographics and I did ballet and I had a Russian friend and a, I had other multicultural friends and, you know, that was just those interests were always there and I think the National Geographics and Handmade and things like that, I must have just been, I was curious. I think my mother would agree with me because we've been discussing spending time with her now, she's 92, I've been able to go, why did I do that? And she said, because you wanted to and it made you happy. You wanted to draw. I was painting and drawing. Dad was a printer so I had lots of paper. You painted big-eyed girls. I did and we used to sell them. Isn't it? Can you tell the story about didn't your father print those for you to colour in? He did. Well, I started drawing the girls with big eyes because I loved Walt Disney as well. And I think what happened first is that mum took some of them to a gift shop around the corner from where we lived in Morris, and they loved them and wanted to buy them. So I was selling them with my, you know, mum was my agent, obviously. And then dad made me a card with it had three little girls on it and the dresses was printed in black and white and the dresses were like an A-line. And I'd hand colour each one indifferently and it had a thing on the back saying original Linda. You still got them? I've got two of them, yeah. I love that you kept them. (laughs) They're in the powerhouse museum. Yes. Linda, then um, you went to work and I love this and I think listeners in Australia would be absolutely riveted to find out that a bridal salon existed where? In Sports Girl, on the top floor of Sports Girl. That was 1967. And we're talking a really serious kind of... A very serious bridal salon where they made to order dresses and very expensive lace, handmade veils and lots of hand stitching even to, you know, some of the lace was so expensive it was only that 15 inches wide or something like that that you'd have to hand stitch together to make a quite a fitted bodice or a dress. So, And the head lady in the workroom actually cut everything out without a pattern. But she cut the dresses out from the measurements with pins on the table. So I learnt a lot about dealing with beautiful, expensive fabrics that, you know, it taught me a lot. The sports girl in the 60s. Groovy, fabulous, downstairs and old-fashioned and classic upstairs. So it was a great combination because you had to go through sports girl downstairs to go up to get to the floor where we worked. And what would it have been like go-go boots? What are we talking here? Mini skirts? A bit later. Probably, Yeah. Now, after that, you skedaddled. <laughs> no, I did photography for a year. Oh, did you? Yes, at Parantech with I didn't realize Paul that. Cox. Yeah, well, photography was in our family as well. My grandfather took a lot of photographs and mum took a lot of photographs. So I took my first photos of my dolly in the clothes that I'd made for <laughs> against a tree. So things haven't changed, yeah, really. Right. Then you skedaddled. Then I skedaddled, yeah. And you went... First of all, to P&G, right? Or you ended up there? Tell me about no, how no, you, we, what did you do? With two friends, with Peter Tully and Fran Moore, we went off to travel when we went to live in New Guinea first for a year. And the three of us then, we stayed travelling together for three or four years. And it was like even through that year, which was amazing to be there, and it's like, we'd better get travelling. We've been here a year. We can't just stay living here. We're supposed to be travelling. What was wonderful about it? Just Madang was an amazing spot and just because of, I guess, my interest from as a younger person from the National Geographics of being able to be around people living in their villages, around where the weaving and the baskets and the billums and, you know, just being around things like that was what I had a big interest in. It was pretty intrepid of you to be there, right? It wasn't a common place to nip off to. 
You mentioned Peter Tully. Would you be able to just tell us briefly about Peter Tully and what he went on to do? Well, I was walking down with my camera, walking down the street in Carlton, and this young girl came up to me and said, wow, you look fabulous. You've got to come and meet my friends. They're around the corner and come on. And that was Peter Tully and Clarence Chai. Just from the visual. I love it. You look like you'd get along with them. (laughs) Exactly. And I did because... You know, they became like my best friends and my Peter, you know, we just were very close and used to make clothes for a shop that Clarence had eventually and things like that. So I know that they were making their costumes for Where Did the Arts Ball? So it was like, hello. (laughs) What would they have been? Clarence was making one that was lots of rings that were all joined together like a Paco Rabanne sort of dress. Like a chainmail situation. Something like that, yep. And I can't remember what Peter was making, but anyway. But Peter went on to, you know, work on gay Mardi Gras for the costumes, the whole sort of thing of that in Sydney. But, you know, there's so many stories. It's amazing. Mm. And we've remained dear, dear, dear friends, yeah. And famous jewellery pieces as well that were kind of kitchen amazing. Yeah, he studied jewellery and when Jenny and I started doing our shows together, he made lots of accessories for that, like plastic palettes and maps of Oz. I remember Opera House. Opera House, yes. Plastic, yeah. I was going to say yeah, plastic. Yeah, colourful. Yeah, riotous. <laughs> very. Yes, it was all. Yes, it was all very colourful. So you, Peter Fran, you leave and then you go through. We wanted to sail around the islands and travel in that way, but to get out of New Guinea, we had to fly to the Philippines. So that was seeing a bit of the Philippines, and then fly down to Singapore, where we had friends to stay with, and then got on a cargo ship and sailed to Sumatra, and then travelled across Sumatra, Indonesia, to Bali like that. I mean, I went to Sumatra 20 years ago, and it was incredibly remote, or felt incredibly remote to me. What was it like in 1971, or whenever it was? (laughs) Yeah, well, it was. It was remote. But that's, we were just travellers. I mean, hippie trail stuff, right? Was it a right Sort of, but I didn't think I was a hippie, no. I didn't feel like a hippie. What did you feel like? Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I loved the traditional clothing that people wore everywhere I went. I mean, I guess we were lucky because we were still there when not everybody was wearing jeans. You could maybe get a hint of it in the odd place, but it was wonderful to be in places where most people were wearing traditional costume or traditional however you put it together, mm. making do with what you've got or or if mm. it's hand-woven or hand-made or hand-stitched or hand-dyed and, you know, you have certain things you wear that tell your status. Just being around all of those things for me was really inspiring and I guess we were travelling and not – I wasn't a collector as such. They're all the things I loved, mm. indigo dyeing, all of it, everything. And learning a lot from that as well, that's what I was talking about actually, that we weren't collectors so I didn't really go shopping with all of our travel. It wasn't having to buy all these things. We had a limited budget. The travelling was cheap. around with you anyway. Well, exactly, mm. and you didn't even have suitcases with wheels. You know, we had probably old-fashioned suitcases or something. Did you? I would just imagine you would Well, Peter did. He had a big suitcase. <laughs> Those big leathery, you know, they're all quite heavy. Mm. What was it like when after all of that you suddenly arrived? I'm sure it wasn't sudden actually, but what was it like after all that when well, you arrived in after, Paris? Well, we arrived in um, Istanbul first and that was a shock. And we met then the hippies who were travelling from there, I guess, travelling through there to get to where we just left. So, But what about the contrast of being then after that being in Paris, which is obviously such a... Well, then we flew to Amsterdam and then went by train down to Paris. It was fantastic. But I had my list. I had a diary that had the list of all the places I wanted to see when I got there with Paco Rabanne, Pierre Cardin, Courage, Balenciaga, Dior, Chanel, Madame Grey, and art and museums and things like that. But I still have that little diary that's got all this list of things written in it. Yes, I do. On that list of venerable yes. Paris couture houses, yes, <laughs> I mean, I can see why you'd write on your list Dior. And Mia and Vicky, yep. But I can't see how you would suddenly fetch up there. <laughs> well, I did. Chanel was the first one I think I fetched up at, actually, because I learned a bit of French and I walked around outside the front door for quite a long time before I worked up enough courage to knock on the door and say, I'm from Australia and do you have a job? And they said, well, they didn't have a job. It probably wasn't that easy if you weren't 
French actually to even get one at the time because, you know, staying in Paris and things like that. But they were so kind to me and they took me inside and showed me all around. So I got to see the staircase and the whole. They were just amazing and very, just really kind to me. And that, that stayed with me to years to come with people getting in touch with you and wanting to come and visit you or wanting to do work experience and things like that. Even going into any of those stores at the time was pretty awesome because, you know, they were so elite and so magical and so unobtainable really for most of us that, you know, just to knock on the door even to go in a shop was something pretty amazing. You can still feel like that. (laughs) (laughs) It was not enough just to look around Chanel. No. Are you talking about my Dior adventure? (laughs) Because I met a journalist who worked for Marie Claire, actually, and she let me a sewing machine. Other people could work in cafes or teach English, but I could sew. So if you're going to get a job in another country, you usually do something that you can kind of do easily, which I could sew, so I could sew. I started making more clothes for friends and some costumes for some Spanish theatre, you know, just people, because we were there for a couple of months, living there for a couple of months. But your friend who gave you the sewing machine then procured you a ticket oh, yes, to the we greatest show in town. Yes, we went to a Dior show in the Dior and sat on a gilt chair and just like in all those beautiful old photos in the Dior book, just like that. There's a Dior exhibition, a retrospective of 70 years of Dior at the NGV in Melbourne. Yes, it would be fabulous to see it, actually. And it remind me, well, I think I love the elegance of it and I'd always loved photography and I'd loved Avedon's photographs or all those those exquisite photos and the the posing and things like that that I think. It's so interesting, the posing amidst things that aren't so grand. I mean, what he did was the revolutionary stuff, wasn't it? Well, exactly, yes. And the Helmut Newton early ones as well. I mean, because I loved all those photographs. So I guess the photograph and the image making for me was really important, like the pose or like a classical painting almost or the beauty of the shapes. I think that was what I was looking at and what influenced me even over the years of with Jenny going off into the bush and taking photographs of her dressed up. And, you know, the photography and the image making thing was really important. Actually, it's it's so obvious that you had some sort of background in photography now that I know that, because some of those images that are very famous of your later work are just such strikingly great setups. That's your eye. Your eye is to see the garment in its place as well. That's as right. Makeup. And not cropping. And, you know, you'd take five photographs. You had a roll of film and you'd take a roll of 12 or, you know, and I still have all the thousands of photographs and they're all going to the Canberra National Library. So... They're part of a documentation thing that I'm really working on now. So they were really important for me, a really important part of that work in the uh, in the 70s and from meeting Jenny and, you know, I thought she was exquisite and we could, you know. And the face wasn't always so important to be in the photographs because the face can immediately take you to another place. So sometimes the face was more mysterious or hidden behind a bit of something or... Or from the back or, or you know, yeah, different things or... like that, being more mysterious, yeah. And the figure in a big landscape, which was sometimes a bit like a Japanese bit of artwork as well that you... Ding! <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my opal rings on the beautiful cup that I'm drinking out of. So back in Australia in 1973, you met Jenny Key when Jenny had just leased her shop in Sydney yes. in the Strand Arcade. And I could have met her in London. I went to where she worked and we may have even spoken. Because in the Chelsea Antiques Market? In the Chelsea Antiques Market because we were, she remembers some of the dresses that I was looking at at the time that were hand-painted. But when you're not meant to meet, you don't. So we didn't meet till we were both back in Australia. And at that point, Jenny was looking to commission and to buy for the new shop that she was well, opening. Well, she or? had contacts with her friends in London and, you know, she was mad about the 50s prints and having maybe some patchworky sort of things made. and Hawaiian prints? Hawaiian prints Which and things loved. like that. Yeah, well, of course. And the shop wasn't even finished when I went up to Sydney with the next exhibition at the Beniathan Galleries with Paul Craft and Clarence from Paraphernalia in Melbourne. And I'd made a few things out of 50s prints because I'd found a fabulous shop in Glen Waverley that still had rolls of absolutely exquisite, beautiful 50s prints. Oh, so dead stock, original stuff that hadn't sold. Yep. 
Really? So I That's had, great. I had it all on lay-by and I could just go and have it sent up to me or mum and dad would go and organise some more to be sent up. Lay-by. The what eye. A great but, thing. I know, but the eye for knowing that it was really worth something. Because no one else wanted it. No one else wanted it. But you understood the time as well. The timing of it was right. Yes. And then that's when people had said to me, oh, you've got to meet Jenny Key. And people had been saying to Jenny, you've got to meet Linda. And well, we met and then we just synced in immediately and how fell madly in love and just started to work together since. and been friends ever since. But how would you describe Jenny Key in a couple of words to those who may not know about her? Well, she was very Chinese and also I had a huge interest in Chinese things. So, And the fact that we both wore glasses, there was just an immediate kinship and knowingness about how we met like that as well and both knowing that we were loving the same things but coming from, you know, I travelled to the east and she travelled to the west and, you know, we crossed over like that, which was something really unusual as well. In her book, A Big Life, she Mm. describes meeting you and she says that you had quite a practical and perhaps unremarkable conversation about work or something, but that there was an undercurrent of deep connection that was just there and you both just knew it. Yes. That's fabulous, isn't but it? But I think you do know that about some people that you meet. I mean, it could be that you were going to have an amazing affair and get married and have children and stuff like that, but it was a creativity that we were obviously destined to meet. 1973 in Australia, there was a feeling of hopefulness, right? I mean, there was a feeling of change. Whitlam. I guess so, but I don't even know if I thought about it like that at all. We'd come back from travelling. It was amazing. It was fabulous to be in Sydney. It was amazing to meet Jenny and to be able to immediately just go and, well, she showed me her shop. She was about to open the shop. I can do this, you can do that, we can do this. And we just did. Flamingo Park was in the Strand Arcade in Sydney. Upstairs in the Strand Arcade. And it was a really old-fashioned, exquisite old arcade. And Jenny's shop was, you know, she knew that it would be amazing just because of where she'd been in London. So she understood exactly what she was doing and that it would work and that you come upstairs, you you have a destination. You don't need to be on the ground floor. You're upstairs, you lean over the balcony, you can cooey to all your friends down there and or cooey to the other people up there and, you know, eventually more people began to move into the Strand Arcade. There was Ace Burke. Do you remember that? Yes. I'm fascinated by Ace Burke because of the lion. Oh, right. Well, that's an amazing story. I mean, it became a gathering place of lots of different people. We will share in the show notes some pictures of Ace Burke's pet lion. I mean, you just can't imagine. This guy, he sat in the back of a, oh, I don't know what kind of car it was, fab old vintage sports car in London with his big liony paws. He lived in their antique shop on the King's he Road. He grew up in their antique shop. And then, they, do you remember him? Did you meet that lion? No, I didn't meet Christian, the lion. Christian, his name yeah, is Christian. And then they released, released him. him. Oh, we'll share the video. It's the best thing you've ever seen. Yeah, but it's not the releasing. It's no, when it's they the go back. back. It's when he goes back to visit. And the music, of course, they play. He goes back to visit his lion, who's his best friend, in the wild. And then the lion, after many, many years, remembers him. Oh, my word. But that's what's so amazing about animals, as we know now. Everyone posts pictures of animals and it's like, they're extraordinary and they do remember. Of course they would. And that was but so moving. Oh. And Ace, he was amazing. So, so there he had was, a plant shop, right? Yeah, Venus flytrap. Is that what it was called? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that just came to my mind immediately. Describe the interior of the frock shop that was Flamingo Park. It had blue walls, slightly metallic, and the beautiful carpet and with 50s objects and things in it. So it was quite was actually quite tiny and the counter and the music the reggae that played you know all of that was really important as well of course (laughs) by the rivers of babylon can you tell us about the shows because i've only ever seen pictures of the shows but it's very clear that the flamingo follies shows that you and jenny staged at flamingo park were extraordinary and revolutionary because until that point I mean, before, fashion shows were stage things in Australia, weren't they? Think about David Jones and the walking down the runway with the Women's Weekly. Well, they this probably even there. hardly had a runway, actually, because they would have been, I guess, the, from the shows that I'd seen in George's growing up, they would have been with the chairs sitting around, a bit more like what I saw in the Dior show, a bit more formal, like 
no running, slow walking, really posing and standing in front of people to sort of showing off what you're wearing more and even sometimes holding a number. I was about to say number 44 and no music. Someone saying number 44. And describing it quite old-fashioned. When I had my studio in Bondi, in Bondi Road, Jenny would come in on a Friday, pick up the clothes, we'd go into the shop together and we'd have yum cha in a Chinese restaurant called the Hingara. So we asked the Hingara if we could do our fashion show there in 1974 and they said yes. So on the second floor of the Hingara restaurant, with it had pink and blue and green laminex walls. So we did our fashion show there. So the girls had to be on the next floor up getting dressed chaos of course and then come down the stairs and do the showing so that was in December the 10th I think it was in 1974 so everyone had their dinner on this low sort of table that then that was cleared and then the show began where did they walk on the table they walked on the table that became the catwalk Of course. And they danced down the catwalk, right? A little bit, but it was still, we had the music sorted for each sort of song and it was still a bit of the reggae and early old-fashioned 20s music, whatever became suitable for the whole concept of the show, really. And that was some 50s prints. I'm seeing metallic sun rays. Yes, Ellen Pleating. What, what, what? Ellen Pleating. I had the pleating done by Ellen Pleating. (laughs) That's amazing. Who was that? Just people who did, I knew about things like that, you know, they have the paper and they pleat, Mm -hmm. they were sunray pleated. The reason why I say it's amazing is because we've lost those places. Your first opera house applique case or not? Oh, yes. Thank you for reminding me. The opera house dress, how could I forget? The opera house dress was the first dress that came out because the year before we'd been at the opening of the opera house in the end of 1973. Oh, that's why. How beautiful. Yes. And it took a while to work. It was very simple when one looked at it because it was just the shapes of the opera house but it's still how do you do it and a peak of opera house came out here and a peak of the opera house at the collar and then the rows of the opera house around the bottom of the skirt. Really that was, I don't know if it was, but it feels to me like that must have been one of the first Australiana designs. I mean when we use that word you often think of flora and fauna but we're talking about iconic buildings. such a big story to tell, isn't Mm. it? With the yeah, story because of we came. Design. Yeah, well, the blue sky, the beautiful flowers, the bush, the opera house—all of these things immediately were part of our influence and inspiration. We knew that you could do your own prints and that you could have your own knitting and your own crocheting and embroidery and weaving and things like that. So, trying to make those things happen was at the top of our list of how to be creative and how to do really different things. And having the fifties prints and brocades and whatever or other weavings and things from other countries was just the way that we were able to do things really differently in the first place. But that is a revolutionary moment in Australian fashion because until that point largely, I'm sure there are examples of someone who did something local inspired by flowers. In fact, upstairs I have a wedding dress made from the 1930s of flannel flower lace. Well, I've got some wattle embroidered organza that would probably be from the 40s and 50s and things like that. Fab. So people were doing it, but when you think Very about... Very low-key and not really commercially because what people did was they copied overseas all the time. That was just what you were meant to be doing. You would see the samples. Things took a long time. You'd be able to actually buy some of those and then have them copied here. That's the way that you would have worked with some of those companies overseas. Well, I mean... And with magazines. And I know ones. that people... I did some pattern making for someone and they just would give you the photograph of something from overseas and say, just make that. I think that was still happening when I arrived in Australia. (laughs) I think that happens everywhere in the whole wide world anyway. But then just to be coming back to that idea of what you two did, I mean, it was, it was in one way obvious because you're looking around you and you're interpreting what you see, but in another way it was like a massive change because we hadn't had that in Australian fashion, if we even had Australian fashion. Did you think we were doing something amazing? Of course we did. (laughs) (laughs) We knew we were. And the other thing is because, well, I'll talk about me, you know, because I knew what you could do when you were in Paris, but we didn't have the facilities to do that. So we had to be innovative and clever and make do with what we could do. So that was something else that you could say informed our work and finding people to knit, to sew, to work with us in that way as well. 
I was going to ask you how you did it. So then after that first show, you went back to the shop the next day and people could come and order? Well, another part of what... How did that go down? No, no, (laughs) but another another part of that show, I had bought and was able to have a collection of Chinese costumes. I read this. I met a Chinese friend in London who... She gave us some presents that we were obligated, I felt then, to give them to her Chinese friends in KL so that we got to meet them. And one of them, I could say, look, is there Chinese embroideries or is, you know, just wanting to see handmade things like that. And one of the girls said, well, look, my mother's got a few things you might like. And so off we go to visit her mum and under the bed in the trunk is the Chinese opera costumes because she was a Chinese opera singer. How old? They were 1920s. Nobody in the family was interested in them, so I was given the gift of a couple and then we worked out eventually that we were, I was able to buy them. So we went back to KL to get them and some of those costumes were in at the final. We always had a big celebratory end, the bride. Well, you had to have a bride. It was a tradition that you always had at the end of a show. So the Chinese opera costumes became the feature that was at the end of the show and some of them I'd altered slightly or and Jenny and I both wore Chinese costumes as well and we're in a Chinese restaurant fab and it was it was fab I want to jump forwards to bush couture whenever I think of you Linda I think of the first time I saw one of your pieces in the flesh so to speak which was the oh yeah where was that it was the black cockatoo dress oh yeah it was in a gallery in Willara you oh at Shapiro's oh did you see that yeah and to see it up close and to see its majesty, I'd seen. Well, that was of it. 1977. Black cockatoo with petals of feathers. Yeah, both petals of feathers. It was a circle cut, and then I just would cut by hand all the shapes, and then zigzag around all the petals and layer it. And from discovering how that circular thing went, being able to then just put your arms short and it turned into a jacket. Such a brilliant thing, and actually slightly Balenciaga inspired, okay. in a way, the concept of some of those shapes. That meets then the majesty of those birds. Let's talk about birds. Yes. Let's talk about the bush. Let's talk about flowers. (laughs) Let's talk about waratahs. Let's talk about... Well, they all just started inspiring us immensely and it was an obvious thing, like the French have the rose and we have waratahs. So, you know, we're going to draw them and paint them and embroider them and print them and knit them and crochet them and do everything we can with them. We still do. Actually, I'm thinking now of um, that wonderful picture in Vogue Italia that Anna Piaggi did of you and Jenny and wattle knits. <laughs> yes. God, that's Well, that good. was 1977. It was a big year for us, oh, same actually. Year. Yeah. Why was it a big year for you? Just all that creativity coming out, I think, and knowing that it was something amazing and that people loved it and, you know quite emotional about all of that as well like being able to do all these beautiful things really and we had a government development export grant to take a collection we had like trunks of clothes to go to Milan Paris in New York to show the rest of the world what we were doing oh that's good the government facilitated a grant for such a thing isn't it yeah well it's a lot of work involved in you know taking trunks of clothes and you couldn't do it on your own well I guess these things happen now because of fashion weeks and this is what people are doing. We just did it all a bit earlier. So what was it like when you took those clothes? Where did you go first? We were in Milan. I mean, with Jenny's great friends, Anna Piaggi and Vern were there. So we went went to all the shows, of course, and changed several times a day. And whenever we walked down the street, people just followed us because we were awfully (laughs) colourful. Where did you go in your regalia? Can you remember? We would have gone. We went to all the shows that were on because we were there during the fashion week. So that's what we would have done. In Milan and then in Paris. Yeah, and then New York. And then New York. We didn't go to shows in New York, I don't think. We just had our collection and people came to visit us and we just did all these amazing things. And so where did that's that take That's when I met Charles you? James. Oh, did you? Yeah, we met Charles James. Was he wearing his puffer coat? That's my favourite no. coat. That was amazing. Then I was um, given entree to go and see his collection of things at the Costume Institute in New York, walking past all these amazing in alphabetical order going past, you know, coming to then Charles James, and they took the clothes down for me to have a look at as well, which was... That construction is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there was a, the reason why I know is the Met exhibition they recently did or a couple of years ago, but when you look at how he cut things, it was incredible. Yeah, and they were actually quite heavy, 
And because of that was the time as well. So, you know, the balance of them was really amazing because they would have been quite light but quite heavy as well. I always loved though that story about Antonio Lopez wearing that down jacket that is kind of, when would he have done it? I mean, I don't know when it would have been made. It's late 50s. Right. But he, so then Antonio is wearing it out to some disco in the 70s. But when you see that jacket or a picture of it, it looks so fiercely modern. You can't date it. It's undateable. Could have been last week. Is that the, just occurs to me, is that one of the defining points of something fantastic that it lives outside of its time? Or does it have to, ooh, what's my question? What do you think about that? Well, it can be both (laughs) things. Because if something is really traditional from the past and is that and it stays that, it still is amazing as something that was made a long time ago that looks really contemporary and modern. Could be. Yeah, they're both, they're equal but really different. Do you think that your pieces, when you look back at that year 1977, because you'd made so many things then that have become iconic, how do you view that time? And how much do those pieces hold the goings-on of what was occurring in that time? Are they a record of what Australia was like in 77 for you? What does it feel like? No, they're my record. I don't know if they were whatever was going on in Australia, actually, but I guess it was my exploring and my discovery of looking at the nature around me and making something beautiful from it that you could either, you could wear, and that was, funnily enough, a little bit practical as well. (laughs) Well, you can roll it up and crunch it up and stick it in a suitcase and take it out and it would still look really good and you didn't have to iron it. Shake it. Yeah, shake it, things like that. Don't know what my question is now. Well, you were asking about bush couture and how that started. So I think it started a bit earlier, but I was, I guess, with my name as the label and then thinking about what was I doing and being so inspired by the bush and travelling out to Alice Springs, travelling out in the late 70s and, well, a lot of travelling to the bush anyway, and then going out, being inspired by opals, madly obsessive, being inspired by opals and wanting to go to Lightning Ridge and to all the opal fields and and then being in Alice Springs. And it just came to me about a name of bush couture, which was inspired by the bush and you could wear it in the bush and come and go from the bush and you'd still look fabulous in the city. And it was like me taking the bush into the city, into my studio in King's Cross and having a stage setting that I do sets in and bring bits of red dirt and corrugated iron and, you know, like bringing the bush to town because it was such a part of how I felt and what I wanted to do. And I had little exhibitions of opal jewellery things and little salon showings that I guess was inspired from seeing the Dior show and 1920s movies where suddenly, you know, they're in a salon and some gorgeous girl's coming out in some fabulous frock. And a theatre, the theatrical part of it for me was all important. When did you begin using fabrics that David McDermott painted for you? Oh, 1975, early, because he painted some things for the show that was at the Bondi Pavilion. So that, that was, was the, show that you, the Flamingo Follies show that you did with Jenny? Yeah, ah. 1975. So we did our shows together to 1981. Yeah. And then we started sort of moving a bit in different directions like that. And I wanted to, I had my own studio space that people could then come to, not a shop as such, but like I called it a studio. And I did all the shows in there and exhibitions and things like that. So it was more wanting to keep up that, like performance art almost. And, you know, concentrating, we were both sort of moving in slightly different directions, still with the same inspirations. I want to talk a little bit about what the bush means to you and about, I mean, I want to talk about actually dyeing and natural dyes and things, but can you share with us a little bit about why you fell in love with that aspect of Australia that some of us don't even see? Well, I did from when I was tiny because I grew up by the beach and with my parents, we spent every holidays, we'd often meet with the cousins possibly or we just went on holidays camping with the tent and then one of those cute little tiny circular caravans we just spent a lot of time in the bush and a lot of time at the beach so the street I grew up in at the time was a dirt track dirt road and I had tree houses in lots of different trees on all the different properties before the houses were built and things like that so the love of the bush it was just always with me what do you love about the dirt I love especially red dirt I just liked it (laughs) I mean it is it's such a unique to Australia visually I mean the colour of it once you get out there yeah it is amazing 
So for me, just being in the bush was just a part of growing up and I just kept up that love of nature always. And then if you're talking about with bush couture being inspired by being able to use indigo dyes and natural dyes and burying things in red dirt and dyeing them in boiled up leaves and things like that, that all of those things I've thoroughly explored. In our modern world, I feel like most people don't even know how stuff is made. They don't know how stuff is dyed. It's kind of a mysterious process. You buy a piece of clothing, it's on a rack, in a, on a hanger, on a rack in a shopping centre, and you have no real connection with how that came to well, be. Well, I guess some people have no interest either. And I, for me, I guess it started early that I had an interest because of wanting to make things. So I had to go to the source of, of whoever I was working with in those days. I had to go to their factory. If it was in India where I was getting things from, I had to go to the factory. I had to meet the people and know who I was working with like that. And also then... You can see their skills and how you can make things work. So I've seen bad conditions and I've seen amazing conditions and I've always known how toxic the fashion industry can actually be. I've worked in a factory. I know all those things. I know. When I bought my little pants from Kmart, I think of that person who sewed them because I know what it's like and the person who cut them out and all of those. You know, I know about that. So I send them a thought. And I'm keeping them. I don't throw them in the bin. Ah, oh, yes. Or, you know, yeah. until they wear out or they're in the bush because my clothes go from being in the city to that I wear them in the bush so they have a really long life. <laughs> I love, though, that connection, that idea that you, obviously you seek that out, the understanding of who made what and how, but what is so important about the hand, do you think, about hand work and... Is it magic? I mean, the way well, that it's it is al- magic, and I think maybe like the, the dying that's exactly the- right. The energy that goes into it, and for Jenny and I, both in the beginning, a lot of what we were selling, because we were selling things, obviously, was the fact that they were carefully made, beautifully made, thoughtfully made, and they would last. It wasn't about a fashion that was in or out, but we were a really tiny, small business. Although we became incredibly well known, and you know, it, it did grow in its different ways, but. Things would go into the shop, people would love them, they would buy them and then whatever people loved, we just would keep making. It was quite simple really and I'm sure there's lots of young people or older people, whoever wants to start, you can start that sort of business at any time actually and lots of people do. You can still, I would imagine, that you can still have a cute little shop that becomes a little hub that you deal with in a small way, on a small scale, and you can manage to make it work. I think that people are doing some things like that. You don't have to have this huge, big business that you have to do all these collections and run yourself ragged trying to make it work. When you first said that, I thought, well, no, because rents are so high in so many of these cities that it's very difficult. But then I thought, no, it is possible. Last week, you and I were at a wonderful place in Sydney called The Social Outfit, where they're doing just that. Yes, and they're training young people or older people, whoever with circumstances that suit to be there, they're training them, doing a proper course in knowing how to sew and cut and and they have the shop in the front so that you're learning to deal with people like that. But, I mean, you could do that with a friend, a group of people that you share and make it work like that. It doesn't have to be that you're thinking of yourself being... You can't do it alone anyway because, you know, if you want to have clothes, someone has to make them. And I think there are people doing really innovative things from what I can see. How important has it been to your practice and your whole experience to collaborate? Well, it has been important. And I guess I've loved it because it's taken me to lots of amazing places. I want to finish up talking about Utopia. What exactly did you do there? How did you work there? And can you just explain a little bit about it? When I first first travelled out to Alice Springs in 1980... But before I travelled to Alice Springs, I think there was an exhibition in Sydney of some utopia silks. I'd always had an interest in going to any of the Indigenous Aboriginal art galleries in Sydney, so I was informed about what interesting things were happening anyway and started collecting beautiful bark paintings and things like that from early days. And so when I went out to Alice Springs the first time, I actually met Robin Davidson, who wrote tracks, and I met some of the women who were working at Utopia Station. So... I'm curious. I wanted to know more. So made those contacts and then 
met more of the women when they came to Sydney with their silks and I was then had my studio in King's Cross so I had some of their beautiful batiks there and in 1982 I went back to Alice Springs and then went out to Utopia Station with their invitation so that I could meet the women, of course, who's what I liked, show them what I was doing and I had made clothes out of all their beautiful silks and things like that and was taken out to all the different outstations where the women where the women were doing their beautiful batiks. So I got to meet everyone, got to meet Emily, got to be there. Emily. In the, Quangware, one of the really famous artists who, you know. I mean, after the batik, a few years later, they did start painting on canvas and I would send them white cotton clothes made up and they would do the batik on them and then send them back to me. So, you know, started this whole wonderful relationship that went on for quite a few years until they really started doing more work on canvas, painting on canvas. But this is also so important to the story of Australian fashion and Australian clothes and Australian art, right? Well, I should be thought at the time it was so obvious that Indigenous women or, you know, men would be involved in creating their own clothes to wear and things like that. But it's just taken a long time, but it's actually happening now in an amazing way at the Cairns Indigenous Art Fair, young fashion designers with incredible textiles and clothes, and in the Darwin Art Fair as well, they've just doing incredible things. Now, some of these were started, the art centres in some of those communities where they're doing textiles in particular were started 40 years ago, like the Tiwi, but then there's so many now. It is amazing. They're all getting more confidence and it's all fabulous. Linda Jackson, you are all fabulous. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm curious too. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you